Seeking the Extraordinary is sponsored by The Colony Group, a national wealth and business management company that seeks the extraordinary by pursuing an unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about how The Colony Group manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. Welcome, fellow seekers of the extraordinary. Welcome to our shared quest. A quest not for a thing, but for an idea. A quest not for a place, but into the inner, unexplored regions of ourselves. A quest to understand how we can achieve our fullest potential by learning from others who have done or are doing exactly that. May we always have the courage and wisdom to learn from those who have something to teach. Join me now in Seeking the Extraordinary. I'm Michael Nathanson, your Chief Seeker of the Extraordinary. Welcome, listeners. On this show, which is all about understanding people who do things at the absolute highest levels, it seems natural that we've spoken with many elite athletes, among them players from the NFL, NBA, WNBA, NCAA, and multiple Olympians, as well as our most recent guest, who broke multiple long-distance swimming and running records, including running the length of Japan, and then in her 50s, the 3,000-mile length of the Himalayas. But we've never had a professional golfer until today. Today, we're going to meet our first professional golfer. He was the youngest player ever to qualify for the U.S. Amateur at the age of 14 in 2002. He was recruited by all the major collegiate golf programs, but being from Northern California, decided to stay home and play for Stanford. At Stanford, he went on to be an All-American and a member of the 2007 NCAA championship team. He finished his amateur career among the top 15 in the U.S. amateur golf rankings and promptly earned his PGA Tour card at the 2010 Qualifying School, making him one of two PGA Tour golfers of African-American descent on the 2011 PGA Tour, along with Tiger Woods, and the first to graduate from the Tour's Qualifying School since Adrian Stills in 1985. After the 2011 PGA Tour, he played on the Corn Ferry Tour, but he also battled a major back injury causing him to miss four and a half years. The doctors thought his career was over, but he persevered, beat the odds, changed his swing, and ultimately returned to professional golf and the PGA. In 2020, he had a top 10 on the PGA Tour and finished the season number 141 in the FedEx Cup standings. And in 2021, he had six top 25s and 27 starts, including a top 10 finish at the AT&T Byron Nelson, finishing the season number 146 in the FedEx Cup standings. He also won his first Corn Ferry Tour victory at the Corn Ferry Tour Championship. The win at 20 under also earned his return to the PGA Tour for the 2021 to 2022 season. His career low round was 64, and his dream foursome includes his father, Tiger Woods, and Barack Obama. Please welcome the extraordinary Joseph Bramlett. Welcome, Joseph. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's great to have you. It's an honor. 
And, and I think what I'd like to do to begin this interview is to start with some of your own words. You once said, it's been my dream since kindergarten to play out there. I've had a one-track mind. That is what I've always wanted to do. From when I first started playing golf, I fell in love with, this, with the game and PGA Tour. That was my dream my whole life. I think we need to better understand that mindset. Let's start with your childhood. You mentioned having this dream since kindergarten. Tell us a little bit about how you grew up, including how it is that you became a golfer and were interested in kindergarten. Tell us about your journey. Yeah, so growing up as a kid, my dad got really into golf right before I was born. And so I grew up watching my dad basically just swing the golf club in the living room every day. And and he just had this infatuation with the game. And I really took to it as well. And at first, it was just kind of growing up trying to do what dad's doing and be like dad. But very early on, I just kind of, my own attachment to the game started to grow. And I had this very vivid image of like walking into kindergarten one day and just like thinking to myself, like, I want to play on the PGA Tour one day. And I, it's, a, it's a weird thing. It's an odd thing because none of my friends understood it. They all wanted to be astronauts, firemen, or basketball players. And I certainly played a lot of other sports growing up, but for whatever reason, I always just had this very close attachment to golf. And I was very fortunate because at a very young age, I, I felt like I had a purpose and something that I knew I wanted to do. And I've been able to chase that dream ever since. Wow. That's a great story. So I, I have to ask, do you remember when you beat your father for the first time? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I was 11 years old. And yeah, it was it was a great, great day for me. Me and my dad were tied going into the last hole. He was a good golfer as well. So we were both about three over par walking up the 18th hole. And I was kind of giving him a hard time telling him today was going to be the day I'm going to get him. And yeah, I made about a 15 footer on the, on the last hole to clip him by a shot. And I pointed right at him. And yeah, he was not happy. It was a Sunday and he went straight to work and left me at the golf course. And yeah, it was it was it was a very cool, fulfilling thing for me. I finally, finally got him. So, so does this mean that at the age of 11, you had maybe, maybe like a three handicap? I mean, were you tracking a handicap? Yeah, I certainly had a, a pretty low handicap. I don't remember exactly what it was. I mean, my father had me playing the back tees when I was a very young kid. And when I was 12, I broke par for the first time. So I must have been probably a, a low single digit handicap by the time. And um yeah, I mean, I, I got addicted to golf very young. So that was the, all I did on the weekends. I just went to the golf course and, uh, and worked on my game and, and competed with my friends. And, and that was what I did. So so you played every weekend. Were you playing during the, you know, during the week as well? I mean, what kind of investment of time goes into becoming that kind of golfer? Yeah, I mean, it's a very high investment of time. My parents stressed academics very strongly when I was a kid. So the weekdays, it was pretty difficult to get out to the golf course just because we didn't live near the golf course. It would be a lot of driving from school to the course, back home, and having to do homework. And I played other sports as well growing up. So it's not like I was only doing golf. But I basically went to the golf course Friday afternoon through Sunday and spent every waking hour out there. And it was it was great. I mean, I'd, I'd wake up at 6 or 7 a.m. On, on weekend days just trying to make sure my dad was up we could go out to the golf course right away because it was just what I wanted to do and what I love to do and yeah I put in pretty much as much time as I as I could I, I never really calculated it because I just had this passion for the game and so it didn't feel like I, I needed to put in a certain amount of hours I just 
wanted to be there as much as I could to get as, as good as I could. I'm guessing that you've heard this question before, but it's something that I'm really curious about, which is how much of it is talent, natural talent, and how much of it is the the hard work, the perseverance. Could could I mean, if I were to put in that that kind of time when I'd been a kid and played all that time, does that mean that I would be as good a golfer as you? Or is it is it also just being born with some natural talent too? Yeah, that, that's a very hard question to define. Natural talent absolutely plays a certain factor in the equation. I'm fortunate that I have a fairly athletic background. I played a lot of other sports. And now at this point in my career, I have a decent amount of height and size. So that helps me with certain things. I can hit the ball pretty far and, and it, it helps further my career. But I think especially with a sport like golf, it's so precision-based and there's so many skills that you have to learn and acquire that I, th- I really think that if you work hard enough and you have the proper coaching and, and the proper environment around you to grow, um, I think that a lot of people can certainly get very, very good at the game and, and reach some of the highest levels. It's not like basketball, where if you're born with the size and athleticism of LeBron James, you're probably going to be in the NBA. And if you're seven feet tall, you got a really good chance of making it. Golf's a little different in that regard. So for most people, I really don't think that the athleticism factor can cancel out their opportunity to play as a professional, but there's definitely a lot of development that goes into it. Hmm. Interesting. When did you, when, when did you realize you were going to be good enough to be a pro? I really believed it in kindergarten. I mean, it, it sounds, yeah, it sounds like I, I should have probably not had the belief at the time. And I, I certainly shouldn't have seen the results in my game to think it was possible. But for whatever reason, as a very young kid, I, I knew I was pretty good because, I mean, I played with my dad's friends and they told me I was pretty good and I'd kind of beat some people and, and I hit some shots that were pretty cool. And so uh, even at five, six years old, I was really excited about golf and thought I was a really good golfer. And um, from like, I never really had a period of time after that that I didn't believe I could do it. I mean, even in grade school, I was doing presentations on golf or like PGA Tour or, and I just always had a vision of myself being out there one day. And so, yeah, it, it never was a, there never was a point in time where I, it suddenly hit me that I could do it. I just, for some, whatever reason, always believed it growing up that it was, mm-hmm. it was going to happen. You mentioned that you played other sports as well. What else did you play? I played a lot of basketball growing up. My uncle coaches an AAU basketball team. My dad played a lot of basketball growing up. My siblings played basketball. So our, our family was just very invested in basketball. And I love the game to this day. But for me as a kid growing up, I was a very introverted kid. I was a very serious kid. And the idea of team sports frustrated me a lot of times because there's other factors I had to rely on. I had to rely on my teammates to be focused at practice and coaches to make the decisions that I thought were right. Even though I was in sixth grade, I thought I knew best. And I was always attracted to golf because it was all on me and I could go out and practice all day. If I played great, it was because of me. If I played terrible, it was because of me. And, and I could always reflect and then try to figure out how to get better. And for team sports, just they frustrated me when I was young because I had to rely on all these other variables that I couldn't control. And yeah, while I loved playing them and I, I still play them to this day, yeah, it just it wasn't quite the same as golf for me. 
You also said that your parents stressed academics and the importance of academics. Were you a good student as well? I was. Yeah, I was. I, I took school very seriously and um, got very good grades in, in middle school and high school. And fortunately, got good enough grades to get into Stanford where I went to school. But yeah, it was pretty good school. It was it was a very good school, and I, I was very happy and fulfilled to get to go there. I was born at Stanford Hospital. I grew twenty, grew up twenty minutes away, and um, yeah, it was a dream school for me. So yeah, thankfully, I focused hard enough on my academics to to make that possibility a reality. Okay, so so speaking of dreams, you you did achieve your dream at a pretty young age. I was in two thousand ten, and you did that through the the so-called qualifying school. Could you explain to our listeners what the qualifying school is or was? Yeah, so for someone unfamiliar with golf, it's it's a little bit tough to comprehend, but basically what the PGA Tour used to do was run a series of tournaments from September through December, and there'd be different stages involved, and each tournament was its own stage. And so you'd have to get through four different stages. The first stage, there'd be about 120 guys and 20 guys from that 120 would advance. And then there'd probably be about 20 of those sites across the country for first stage. And then second stage, it would dwindle down and there would probably be about six or seven sites. Uh, And it'd be the same type of format, about 100 to 120 guys, and about 18 to 20 would advance to the third stage and then so on. And at the final stage, there was 156 guys, and the top 25 guys at that final stage would receive their PGA Tour card. And so it's just kind of a series of tournaments that you have to survive and move on and survive and move on. And then the final tournament, you have to finish in the top 25. And if you do, you receive your PGA Tour card. So that's a pretty grueling and stressful experience for most golfers because your whole job security for the next year relies on this series of tournaments and if you don't make it you've got to wait an entire calendar year again until this opportunity comes back around and so if you have one bad day or or a couple of bad holes it can really offset your career trajectory and fortunately for me I was able to to get it done on my first shot right out of college and it set me off on a, a really nice path. Yeah, I've read that it's extremely competitive, and it's one way to get into the PGA, and that most professional golfers actually never never get through it. Yeah, no, that's very true. The, the qualifying tournament certainly weeds a lot of guys out, and it's also it's very expensive to try to do. And so as a struggling professional golfer, you don't make a lot of money playing mini tour golf, and so you're kind of trying to decide, is my game good enough to put up five or $6,000 to go through this whole experience? And, and roll the dice and hope that I, I get through. And for most guys, if they go through it three or four years and, and don't get their card at the end of it, they end up usually calling it a career and kind of moving on to do something else. And so it definitely is a, is a big barrier for professional golf, it's something that you kind of have to get through at some point. And yeah, it's very true. A lot of guys don't. Yeah, yeah. And again, uh, just to make sure that that our listeners understand the introduction that I gave and understand your career better. Could you also explain to us what the Corn Ferry Tour, it wasn't always called that, but could you talk talk about that? Yeah, certainly. Uh, the Corn Ferry Tour is a little bit easier to explain because most people are familiar with like professional baseball and how they have AAA, single A, double A, and like an affiliate system that builds up to the major leagues. And the Corn Ferry Tour is very much that. It's essentially AAA 
PGA Tour golf. It's guys that are playing at the level directly below the PGA Tour. And it's an entire calendar season of events. They usually play about 25 tournaments. And at the end of that season, they award out uh, a total of 50 PGA Tour cards. And so the top 25 from their regular season advance up to the PGA Tour. And then they've got a little playoff series at the end where an additional 25 guys receive PGA Tour cards as well. And that's kind of how they build the uh, roster of the PGA Tour. There's an established roster already. And then within a calendar year on the PGA Tour, 125 guys maintain their card for the following season. And then about 75 to 80 of them lose it. And then they kind of regain it through the Corn Ferry Tour. <laughs> got it. Got it. So in, uh, in going through your career, and I mentioned this in the introduction as well, that you're having a great career. You're this young superstar. And in 2013, I read that you suffered a pretty serious injury, what was called a tear to your L4 and L5 discs. I read that that was pretty bad for you. And as I said, uh, you, you, you missed a lot of time. I read that you also consulted with as many as 15 spinal surgeons and that every one of them told you you needed surgery and that the thinking was that your career was over. So tell us about that and tell us why it wasn't over. Yeah, that was that was a very, very challenging time for me. In yeah, July of 2013, I suffered an annular tear to my L4, L5 disc, and it was extremely debilitating. I was on the range warming up for a tournament in Utah, and I was just trying to take some small swings to get loose, and my back just went out. And I don't know if you've had any back injuries before, but the way they're connected to the nervous system is really weird. And it just felt like my whole body set on fire and I just like fell to the ground and couldn't move. And so eventually I was able to get home and I was on the, on the floor for quite a while, like six to eight weeks of not, not moving, not able to do anything. And it was, it was a very, very challenging time. And so the tear itself took about 18 months to heal. And that was just something that naturally had to happen. There wasn't much surgically they could do to, to fix my tear, given where it was located. And then once that tear healed, every time I went back to swing a golf club, literally within two to three swings, I was on the floor again. And I wouldn't be getting off the floor for about two weeks. So it was, it was extremely frustrating because it took away my career. I wasn't able to play. And then even when I would go take a few swings at the golf course, I'd be back on the floor for two weeks. And then I'd go home and I couldn't even barely brush my teeth. I couldn't get around my apartment. It was, it was a really challenging time. And throughout that process, I, I did. I saw 15 different spine surgeons. The first 14 said that my career was most likely over for sure. They all offered to do a surgery that would put rods into my low back and stabilize my back. And in doing so, it would eliminate all the necessary rotation I needed for a golf swing. And so the surgery was going to prevent me from playing golf again. But in my head, I was like, when I'm at home and I'm not playing golf, my back gets better over time. And so I don't know that I need to do the surgery, but I need to find a way to play golf because like I said earlier, this vision I've had of myself since kindergarten is that I'm going to play on the PGA Tour. This is who I am. And that was really one of the biggest struggles I went through in that period was that my, my identity and my, my sense of who I am was kind of taken away. And so for, for four and a half years, I was really trying to figure who I was, what I was about, and how I was going to actually make this, this dream I've had 
a reality because I had a taste of it right out of college. And then like in my mid to late twenties, it was suddenly kind of taken away and yeah, it was, it was very challenging. And so thankfully over time, I was able to get in touch with my current swing coach and physical therapist, and they were able to teach me and show me how to rebuild my golf swing in a way that took all that stress off my low back. And so once we kind of figured out that the way I swung the club before put an enormous amount of stress on my low back that I didn't need to put in order to make an efficient golf swing. Then it just came down to relearning a new motor pattern and a new way to play and figuring out how to, how to make that work and, and sustain it over time. And yeah, thankfully four and a half years later, we were able to, to get that process down and I was able to return to competitive golf. Yes. Continue pursuing my dream. That's fascinating. I've actually, I've actually heard that, that, tell me if this is true, but I've heard that you're an even more powerful golfer now that you can hit the ball even further. Is that true? That's completely true, actually. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty eye-opening. And looking back at the process I went through from the spot I'm in now, I never would have expected to be here today. I was just hoping that I could play a competitive season hit the ball far enough to get around and, and find a way to be competitive. But thankfully with the work I've done with my physical therapist and my swing coach, I actually swing the golf club in a much more efficient manner. Now I used to waste a lot of strength and speed. And now because I swing it more efficiently, I'm able to create a lot more speed than I was before. And I went from being one of the more average length players on the PGA tour to today. I'm one of the longest. So it's been, it's kind of been a blessing in disguise in some ways. What did you do during that four and a half year period? Did you, did you decide, okay, I, I've got to go get another job? I mean, what, no, that's no, a huge that's, amount of time. It was a huge amount of time. Um, I think one of, the, <laughs> one of the things that's worked out <clears throat> for me is that I am a little bit stubborn. And this is, a, this is the vision I've had of myself since I was a young kid. And so going to get another job was never was never an option for me. I did a lot of visualization during those four and a half years. I watched a lot of golf. I tried to visualize myself playing in those tournaments that I was watching on TV. I did a lot of writing. I did a lot of reflecting. I tried to keep the dream that I had as close in my mind as I could. And so I, I knew that if I started thinking about other routes I could go and other careers, I felt they were only going to distract from me trying to get back to the PGA Tour. It's, yeah, I was not not willing to go go another route yet. There were moments of frustration. I, I can't deny that there were moments. Uh, I'll specifically remember about three and a half years in, just as I had met my new swing coach and I hadn't met my physical therapist that I work with now. I was seeing a different physical therapist and we were really struggling through it. And my back went out again. And they got me in touch with this other spine surgeon, and he said he was willing to do an experimental surgery on me. He was willing to just open up my back and kind of take a look. And I was really strongly considering that. And thankfully, my family and close friends at the time talked me out of it. But at the time, it was the first moment I really felt like this might not actually happen. And this might, three and a half years in, I've tried five to 10 different therapists. I've seen 15 different surgeons. Like I was beating my head against the wall. And so I definitely, from an emotional standpoint, started struggling at that point. But thankfully, things work out in funny ways. And shortly thereafter, I met my, my physical therapist that I work with now. And we actually started making some good progress pretty quickly. And yeah, thankfully, I didn't have that back surgery. And the direction things were going turned. And yeah, about a year later, I was playing professional golf again. 
I know people who have had back injuries. I think we all do. It's such a common thing, although it sounds like yours was very serious. But one thing that I've observed in people who have back injuries is often they have fear of getting re-injured. Do you have a fear of getting re-injured? I have a respect of getting re-injured. When I first came back to competing, there was absolutely a fear of getting re-injured. And that's some of the things my therapist and I have talked about more recently is just how much confidence I'm starting to have in my body again. And it's really only started like this summer of 2021. And my re- I returned to professional golf in January of 2018. And so, I mean, if you go from when I first injured my back in 2013 to 2021, I mean, it's taken me almost eight years to kind of have that confidence back in my body. So there absolutely was a fear and it definitely kind of, it overrode my nervous system. Like when my PT would try to get me to do certain movements, like I physically just, my body would not allow me to do it. My brain would try to get my body to move a certain way and it would just shut down. And he knew I had the mobility capability to do it, but I had to get my brain to calm down and my nervous system to calm down to allow me to do it. And so that's really only something that we've started breaking down in the last maybe six months. So it's, yeah, it's a very real thing. I mean, a back injury, just because it, it shuts down your whole life and it can go out at any moment. Like that was the scariest thing for me was when I was out and I was hurt. I mean, I was nervous just to even put my toothbrush under the water in the sink because I had to bend slightly forward to do that. And occasionally when I would do that, my body would feel like it set on fire and I would just fall down to the ground again. And yeah, so you're just constantly walking on eggshells waiting for something to happen. And yeah, I'm just extremely blessed to be in a spot now where I have the confidence back in my body and it's given me reasons to have confidence in it again. Yeah, it's a great story of perseverance and it's a happy story and you made it back yeah. to the PGA and uh, you're having a great career and yeah. and you've got a long career in front of you. You're how old? 33. Yeah, so you've got a, you've old. got a You've got you've got some good playing years ahead of you, but I'd like to ask you, in terms of everything you've done so far, what's your most satisfying accomplishment? That's a pretty easy question for me to answer right now. I, I got my first professional win about a month ago at Victoria National at the Corn Ferry Torch Championship, and that was a very surreal moment for me because the last tournament I played before I hurt my back in Utah was Victoria National on the Corn Ferry Tour in 2013, and so. When I was out with my back injury, I finished up the tournament at Victoria National really poorly. I was in fifth place, and then I went bogey, bogey, double bogey on my last three holes, and I finished, I think, maybe 14th. And it had all these other ramifications with, like, my season-long earnings and where I was on the points list. And the whole time I was out with my injury, I was just thinking to myself, man, if I had just finished that tournament well, I would have full status waiting for me on the Corn Ferry Tour when I come back. But now I'm on the weird medical exception where I've got to do really well in my first few events to get my status back. So there's just like this added level of pressure and anxiety on top of everything else that I was going through with my back. And yeah, this this is about a month ago in, in early September, I, I got my first victory and it was at Victoria National. And I made five birdies in a row on the back nine and kind of made a big charge to catch the guy who was ahead of me and was able to close the deal on that final green that I had just had all these weird visions of when I was out with my out with my injury. So it just kind of came full circle to me. And, and it was a very cool and fulfilling experience. Yeah, congratulations. I, I read about that win. How about regrets? Any regrets so far? 
No, I really try to live my life without regrets. There's definitely things I would do differently with the information that I have now and some decisions I would have, have, have changed. But in terms of regrets, I've always tried to do the best I can with what I have and, and tried to make the best decisions in the moments I had. So no, I don't have any regrets. Mm-hmm. I'm not surprised. You sound relentlessly positive is what I would describe you as. Uh-huh. So, Joseph, you're one of, I believe, only four players on the PGA Tour of African-American heritage. Uh, is that true? Yeah. Four? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Can you tell us what your background is, who your parents are? Yeah, so my dad, is uh, he's half black, half white, and then my mother is, is, is white. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a mixed baby. I'm fortunate in that I do have a bit of a platform. And I do have a bit of a voice that people listen to. And I feel like it's a responsibility that I have to to use that. Now, I'm not in a position where I have the loudest voice. And so at this point in my career, in my life, I'm very focused on trying to further my career as much as I can and to become as good uh, at golf as I possibly can and, and achieve some of those dreams I've had since I was a kid. Now, along the way, I certainly would like to have a positive effect on the people around me and, and the people that follow me. And growing up as a biracial kid, playing the game of golf, golf is a very historically Caucasian game. And uh, there haven't been very many African-Americans to play on the PGA Tour. There have been some and, and some that have really paved the way for some of us now. But especially in the last 20 to 30 years, I mean, when I made it to the PGA Tour in 2010, it was a pretty big deal because Tiger was the only other black guy on tour. And so thankfully, since then, we have a few more and and the numbers are increasing. But I definitely see it as as my role to help further that down the road. And at this point in my career, I'm trying to find ways in which I can do that. I'm trying to find ways in which I can mentor young kids who are trying to play the PGA Tour and and create systems and, and opportunities for those who wouldn't normally have them. But it's also a point in my career where I'm really trying to push go and, and further my own career as much as I can so that I can have a bigger platform one day and have a, a more real impact. Thank you for that, Joseph. Yeah. And uh, speaking of Tiger, so you, you said, I, I think I read this on your PGA profile page. So I assume you said this. It, it said that your dream foursome includes your father, Tiger Woods, and Barack Obama. So do you know Tiger Woods? I do. I do. Going to Stanford, we had a pretty unique opportunity to get to meet Tiger a few times. And uh, he's a huge Stanford athletic supporter. And my coach, Conrad Ray, he actually played on the college golf team with Tiger when they were both at Stanford. So we got to establish a little bit of a relationship with him. And it was wonderful. I mean, we we play a tournament every year back in Orlando where Tiger lived. And so he'd have us over for dinner one night and he'd come watch us play a little bit. And it was just a very, very cool experience because Tiger's been my, I mean, he's been my hero since I was I can't even, I mean, six, seven, eight years old. I used to go watch Tiger play in college when I was a young kid. Like, we, me and my dad would go follow him. So, yeah, I mean, it was just surreal to get to actually talk to this guy, pick his brain, and, and, and learn how he does things. And, yeah, I mean, I, <clears throat> our relationship now, I mean, he's so busy and has so much going on that we, we always say hello when we see each other in person. But, you know, the relationship hasn't really gone a lot further than that. But yeah. just what we were able to establish in college was just, it was amazing for me at the time. Yeah. 
well, I hope when he's fully healthy and recovered, you do get an opportunity to, to play that foursome. And you need Barack Obama for that as well. So have you ever met the president? I have not. No, no, unfortunately. I mean, not unfortunately. I mean, I haven't got that opportunity just yet. I definitely hope one day that I can cross paths with him because he's definitely somebody I've looked up to for quite a while now and somebody I think I could learn a lot from. But yeah, I haven't haven't got that opportunity just yet. But, you know, we're we're allowed to dream and, and one day yeah. it, it might just happen. Yeah. Yeah, I have met him. I, I went to law school with him. We were in the same class, the same section. We took all of our first year classes together. Oh, wow. And and I got to see him again at a at a, a White House holiday party. And and I went went up and introduced myself to him. And he's very polite. He at least pre- oh, yeah. he did a good job at least pretending that he remembered me. But sure one thing did. I do remember though is that there was a professional basketball player there. And he just was, that's, that was all he wanted to do is talk to this guy yeah. because he's a huge basketball fan. I know he's a great golfer. I read he's a 13 handicap, but I think he's more of a basketball fan than anything else. Yeah, no, he definitely is. I know that he and, he and Steph Curry have developed quite a relationship and he's always done his March Madness brackets when he was in the office. And yeah, he, he definitely is a big basketball fan. And but yeah, that had to be pretty cool for you to kind of see the development he went through from law school to being the most powerful man in the, in the world. That's, that's <laughs> a pretty, pretty cool thing to watch. I'll tell you something, Joseph, there's nothing more humbling than seeing someone in your class become the president of the United States. It really, yeah, it's really perspective on, on, on <laughs> truly making a difference in the world. Right. So what's the future for Joseph Bramlett? What does it look like? We're going to find out. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't like to really project. I think that actions speak louder than words. So I don't, I don't want to sit here and tell people that I'm going to accomplish all these things. I've got a lot of dreams and I'm a very, very competitive human being. And I love playing on the PGA tour. I want to win many tournaments. I want to win major championships. I want to be the best in the world one day, but you know, we'll see what the future holds. I'm going to, I'm going to pursue that and chase that with everything I got. And hopefully we can look back in a few years and, and talk about what, what actually was. That's a good humble answer. I appreciate that and respect that. So, so Joseph, we're now going to move into uh, what I call the extraordinary <clears throat> teachings section of our interview. And I like to ask all of my guests the same or similar questions toward the end of the interview, because this is, after all, a study in the extraordinary and what it is that allows certain people, including you, to be so extraordinary. So the first question I'll ask is, what single tip would you offer that has helped you be your most extraordinary self? I think what I've been most fortunate with is just that I found something at a very young age that I was extremely passionate about. And so especially when I talk to younger kids or people, I think the big thing that I try to relay is to find things that get you really fired up and, and that get, make that you feel very passionate and excited to pursue. For me growing up, I spent a lot of hours at the golf course and a lot of my friends like felt like it was really hard to keep up and it wasn't something that they wanted to invest in because it, it didn't speak to them in the same manner in which it spoke to me. And for me, I would lose track of time at the golf course because that was everything that I wanted to do. And so, yeah, I think in terms of trying to your most extraordinary self or find your highest level of achievement in things, I think you have to find things that you're, you're extremely passionate about because it takes a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of sacrifice 
And fortunately, when you find something you're extremely passionate about, it doesn't feel so much of a sacrifice as a, as a gain. When you get to spend your time invested in something that really means something to you, then I think you're just capable of doing so much more with it. What's the best advice you've <laughs> ever either given to someone else or received from somebody else? Yeah, so my father always told me growing up, and this is, it's, it was some tough love, but it was something that really stuck with me and really helped. And he just told me very bluntly, you know, if you fail to prepare, prepare to fail. And uh, I had just played a tournament that I hadn't practiced very hard for. I had been messing around with my buddies, not real, not real focused. And I showed up unprepared and I played really poorly. And I, I walked away from the tournament really upset with how I played and performed. And he gave me some really tough love on the ride home, but it was exactly what I needed. And he just told me straight up, he said, look, son, if you, you fail to prepare, you better prepare to fail. And if you don't show up ready and you don't show up prepared for what you're trying to accomplish, you're not going to get it done. It's not going to happen. And so I've definitely took that to heart and I try to make sure that for every tournament or everything that I try to show up and do a good job in, I'm ready to go. I'd like to ask also, what have been your biggest mistakes or learning opportunities? Did you just answer that question as well? Yeah, I mean, that was certainly one of them. Yeah, in terms of mistakes, that was, that was definitely one of them. I definitely showed up to that tournament not ready to go, and, and that was a mistake that I learned a, a valuable lesson from. And then my time that I was out injured, I, I learned a lot. in terms of mistakes, I didn't really know what was causing them at the time. Looking back, now I understand that my mechanics and the way in which I swung a golf club was was not in a, in a very solid manner for my body. And I also didn't quite have a strong enough team around me with my physical therapist and my coach and, and the pieces to support me as a professional golfer. So that really taught me. But yeah, there, there have been so many instances. I feel like every day you get to learn something new about what you're doing and, and how you can get better at it. The, yeah, I could probably talk for hours about that. I could probably listen as well, but we, we, we probably should keep going with the interview to keep our <laughs> listeners engaged. Yeah, uh, Joseph, do you have a personal mission? You ever think about that? What your mission in life? I, I do. Right now, my mission is become the best golfer I could possibly be. And that's a bit of a, a bit of a selfish mission, a bit of a self-driven mission. I also know that I want to help other people along the way. My parents always taught me growing up, I had a lot of people helped me along my journey. I had a lot of older brother type figures who were more experienced in golf, who were competitive players, who were kind of helped show me along the way. And I definitely want to want to repay that throughout my journey. So in terms of my mission, I feel like it's to become the very best golfer I can become and to try to help other people along the way. Makes sense. And uh, how about, how about, key role models and mentors that you've had? You've mentioned your father. I have to believe he's part of that list. But who have your yeah. role models and mentors been? Yes, I mean, Tiger was a huge role model for me. Uh, I mean, growing up, he was, he was my hero. He did everything in professional golf that I was dreaming of doing at a very young age. And, and I, I saw firsthand that if you put yourself fully into something and you fully believed in yourself, you could accomplish things people thought were impossible. And so, yeah, Tiger, Tiger Woods had an incredible impact on me and, and who I am. And then I, I just had a lot of friends and people that I grew up playing with that, that pushed me. I, I, playing golf, you don't have a lot of young kids out there that you befriend. I would be 12, 13 years old, 
and my friends were like freshmen in college who were playing on the college team or different people who were a lot older than me and further along on my journey. And so I kind of just attached some of those guys to try to learn as much as I could. John Ellis was one of them. He caddies on the PGA Tour now, but he was a really accomplished collegiate and professional golfer. And me and John would didn't have chipping games literally for six to eight hours a day. We would just be chipping and having different contests. And I was just asking questions and and dive into what it took to play at his level and what I needed to do to get there. We would talk a lot of trash along the way. And it was just, uh, it was a really cool relationship for me. And so I had several friends kind of in that manner that were kind of further along my journey that I, I kind of attached to and, and tried to kind of follow in their footsteps, which I think was really important for my development. And what about your support network? Who supports you? You mentioned your, your swing coach and, and I, I imagine you have sponsors. I, I, I don't know. I mean, who, who, what's your team look like? What, what's the team that supports you in everything that you do? Yeah, so I've got a really strong team. I'm very, very fortunate that I've got a lot of people around me that work very, very hard to help me be the very best I can. And so it starts with my swing coach, John Scott Rattan. He's the director of instruction at Congressional, and he's really the one who's helped give me my career back. He helped me rebuild my golf swing and a way in which I could compete. And yeah, there's no way I would be here today without him. And then Cody Fowler is my, my physical therapist. And so Cody and I talk almost every day. He's got a series of exercises that I go through every morning before I compete about 20 to 30 minutes just to kind of get me loose and get my body primed and, and ready for the day so that I don't hurt myself again. And then we go through different workouts in the evenings. And so uh, Cody's been just a, a massive piece for me as well. And he's right there, 1A, 1B with John Scott in terms of giving me my career back and, and getting me back today. Then my caddy is a guy named Reynolds Robinson. And he's the guy who's by my side every single day on the golf course. And yeah, he, uh, he caddies for me every event. He travels with me and we're there side by side every day. And so he's he's been with me through the good times. I'm extremely happy he was there when I got my first win because he's also been there with me in the tough times and some of the miscuts and the and the frustrations and the and the tougher moments that come with being a professional and then my agent Fred Freed well, I know he's the guy who helped me uh, kind of manage things and also bring in some of the corporate partnerships that we can we can establish and then yeah my, my two sponsors are Titleist and Travis Matthews so they take very very good care of me in terms of getting me the equipment that I need to play at the highest level and then fitting me out with with a pair and and all kinds of stuff like that. So yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate. And then I've got a putting coach as well. His name is John Graham. We started working about two years ago and John and I strictly just work on putting. And I saw him yesterday for a few hours. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a small part of the game, but it's a really instrumental piece as well. And John's been a really, really welcomed piece in addition to the team. And yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have a really, really strong support system. It's interesting just as a fan to, to understand how deep the team really goes. And yeah. uh, it doesn't surprise me that you're supported by such a great and strong team. So here's my last question for you. Again, you're a young guy. You're only 33. You've got a lot of, 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 of great things to do in your life ahead of you. But if you had to, 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 to describe it now, what do you think your legacy will be? Well, first and foremost, I hope my legacy is as someone who, who brought a positive impact to the people around him. That's something that is very important to me. I just, I have so many dreams and aspirations to achieve in the game of golf that, you know, 
I don't want to really speak to if those are going to happen or not. I just want to chase them and and I hope one day we can look back on them and talk about what I was able to achieve. But in terms of my legacy, I hope that it'll always start with Joseph Bramlett was somebody who always left a positive impact on, on the people that were around him. That's something my parents kind of beat into me as a kid and that's something I'm really, really grateful that they did because I think that's I think that's a really important thing in society. And I hope I hope it starts there that I was a, a good human being and a good friend and a good person first. And then he was also somebody who played some great golf along the way. Well, I found you very inspirational during this this uh, this interview, and I'm guessing that our listeners also got some inspiration. I'll certainly be watching you on the tour, and I think our listeners will as well. I want to thank you, Joseph, for this great, great interview. Any parting words? No, not so much. I mean, just thank you very much for having me. And thank you for showing interest in my story and and what I've been through. And yeah, I'm just, I'm a pretty lucky guy. I've known since I was a very young kid what I wanted to do with my life and felt a very strong sense of purpose towards it. So I'm just trying to honor that and, and chase it as hard as I can. And that is the extraordinary Joseph Bramlett. And thank you to our sponsor, The Colony Group. The Colony Group is a national wealth and business management company with 15 offices across the country that itself seeks the extraordinary as it pursues its unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about The Colony Group and how it manages beyond money, visit www.thecolonygroup.com. You can also follow The Colony Group on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Colony Group. For Seeking the Extraordinary, I'm Michael Nathanson. Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Nathanson underscore MJ and learn more about my ongoing search for the extraordinary.